Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Nigel Milgate grew up in the rural community of Dubbo, New South Wales. He's a proud man of the Nimba Nation with deep roots to his ancestral lands. For the last 10 years, Nigel has worked within Indigenous communities across Australia, where he empowers people through culture, education, employment, and youth suicide prevention. He's also an avid bow hunter who spends the majority of his time outdoors. Recently, Nigel invited me to tag along. There were things I couldn't film, record, or even talk about, but there's just as much that I can. So in this episode of Anchored, Nigel and I sit down to discuss the Indigenous people of Australia, their incredible history, and a little bit of insight on where they are today. So I was born in a little place called Dubbo. For your listeners, it's about a four and a half hour drive west of Sydney. Um, into western New South Wales, but um, my my mother's side, which is uh, my mother's Aboriginal, my dad's an Aussie fella, but my Aboriginal side and where my Aboriginal heritage and culture comes from, um, our traditional homelands are out around the town of Brewarrina and Burke, and that country out there is called Nyampa Country. When you and I first started, court, you know, communicating, you had mentioned that there was ceremony out. I think it was there. Is that where that ceremony was? Yeah. So there's big fish traps out there. You know the fish traps I was talking to you about. Yeah. Yeah, so there's big culture and ceremony and song and dance and, you know, everything that sort of connects us as Aboriginal people or Indigenous people 
yeah, that's where my homelands are and my people, you know, since the beginning of time have come from that place. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about how we first came to, you know, meet each other. Yeah. And this is this is one of the reasons why I love social media, because yep. we did meet on social media. Yep. Uh, you snuck into my DMs. <laughs> does it mean something else? Yeah, that's does, sort of, right? yeah. No. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a youth worker, so that to me is like, no, that's... Is that like hooking up for young people? Yeah, that's like Netflix and chill, sort of. Do, do you have Netflix and chill? That just means to watch a movie together. Yeah, not so much here in Australia. Oh, I can't wrap my head around the stuff. Like back in my day yeah. when you used to say that you hooked up with someone, it meant that you kissed somebody. So I'd be like 13 and we'd be like, oh, yeah, did you hear okay. that Susie hooked up with Tom? Yeah. But now that means something totally different. Yeah. Okay, yep. so uh, you sent me a private message on yeah, Instagram. That's right, yeah. Okay, that, that's different than sneaking into my DMs. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Oh, I can't keep up with yeah. this stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you sent me a message yeah. and you had said, my name is Nigel, and yeah. basically that you run uh, an Indigenous learning Yeah, group, so it's right? a, Yeah, so um, the company is called Wakageti Indigenous Corporation. Yeah, um, And I noticed that you were putting some stuff up about your experience here in Australia with, you know, native foods and a little bit of the history here. So I thought, um, you know, being friends with um, Adam and, and having some mutual friends there, I, I'd touch base with you and see if you wanted to come out and have a look at the, the true history history and, and culture of this great place that's now called Australia. And I'm so happy I did because this is now our second time meeting. That's right, yep. And uh, the first time I did set out, just for the listener, I set out to interview Nigel and got so, I don't know if it was distracted, I think it was meant to happen like that where you you and I went out into the bush and we got so immersed in the culture and the history yep. and just the environment that we didn't have time to podcast. That's right, So yeah. I've come back again today. We've just got back from being out in the bush again yep. and finally have been able to sit down to do this. So I feel like this is part one because there's so much more still to uncover. If it's anything like we've had the last two, this could end up anywhere. You know, it could. Oh, it does. It goes. It goes everywhere, and it can go on forever. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, you know, we're talking about stuff that's older than uh, sixty thousand years. So yeah, yeah, you know, it could be here for a long time. So let's start there. Not sixty thousand years ago, no. but when you look at histories of indigenous people. Yep. It's all obviously old, but Australia has some of the oldest history. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So there's indigenous communities right across the uh, the, the globe, but here in Australia, you know, some through some of the academic research and everything that they've found, um, some of our cultural sites and some of our old people and burials that have uh, been carbon dated to be in excess of sixty. You know, now I think it's grown to. A, a hundred, but we we don't sort of look at the time, you know, because everything I try and explain and teach and talk about, I try not to talk about it in the contemporary sense. I try and teach it through them old ways. And we didn't have watches, we didn't have time, so we just, you know, we've been here since the first sunrise. Yeah, I think one of my favorite lines was, I had just met you. We were in the truck together for maybe 10 minutes. And I said, you know, I like to be, I'm trying to be politically correct. I'm obviously not very good at it. It's like, what do you guys, what do you call yourself? And you you just didn't miss a beat. And you were like, Nigel. <laughs> yeah, but that's a conversation too. You know, there's people out there that 
like to be referred to First Nations, Indigenous, Aboriginal. For me, you know, my as I talked about, my traditional homelands are Nyampa country, so I identified myself as a Nyampa man and then, you know, Nigel or whatever you really want to call me. Right. So. <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit to your childhood before we branch out here. Yeah, cool. So your mum was... Aboriginal, yeah, so my mum's... Can I just say Aboriginal? Yeah, just say Aboriginal. Okay, yeah, so your mum was Aboriginal? Yep, my dad's not. My dad's just, you know, a regular Aussie guy. My mum, she, she was my 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 rock, you know. She was my, uh, oh, what can I put into words, you know. She was everything to me. My mum sadly passed away in 2010. But um, my mum, she had a pretty hard life, you know, growing up. Here in Australia, there was a, a referendum put in place in 1967 where up until that time, Aboriginal people were counted as flora and fauna, so animals and plants. You know, schooling wasn't an option. Um, because of the colour of their skin. They were taken off their traditional homelands and put onto missions. You know, I explained to you what missions are. They were reserves set up by um, the Christian groups. You know, they were living below the poverty line and, and treated pretty pretty harshly and pretty poorly. So my mum's seen a lot of that, um, but through hard work and determination, she, she gave me and my two older brothers and my sister really good opportunities in life, along with my dad, you know, so... But yeah, growing up in Dubbo was was good. You know, there was a time where we'd swim in the rivers and ride push bikes. You don't see much of that now, you know. But it was it was good times back then, and there were some hard times along my journey as well. You know, some some hard lessons learnt. Unfortunately, a lot of our family and Aboriginal communities in in rural parts of the world of, of Australia are facing some some pretty tough battles in the sense of working out how we fit into this world now and pushing back against some of the negative systems that were put in place against our people. So you know, my mum worked, you know, I remember from a kid, you know, we grew up in a little place in, in Housing Commission over in West Dubbo and um, it was a, like the, the project sort of thing, you know, and moved out of there when it was about five and moved up to another estate and mum and dad, um, you know, both worked. Dad was working on the local council or the, sh- the shire and my mum was working jobs in, in pubs as a waitress and stuff like that. So you know, we come from somewhat humble beginnings but from really good – I had really good parents, you know, and I, I'm very fortunate to have that. But for some reason, you know, as a young man that, that was sort of always trying to figure out who, who I am and where I fitted into society, you know, I, I don't have the darkest skin, you know what I mean? So in some places I was – too white, some places I was too black. Um, so it was, it was tough, you know, but um, always had a good good home to come, come home to. And sport was a big, big part of our, our culture, I suppose, out there at the time. Um, it was an opportunity for, well, the way we looked at it for, for Aboriginal people to make a way in life. Not, not too many of our people at the time, you know, back in those days had the big flash jobs and houses and that and just... Yeah, so I was able to use sport as an opportunity to make a career and, and a better opportunity at life. And did you follow the NRL here? So like that's the rugby league. That's the rugby league. I yeah. can't say so, I follow it, but I know but what it you is. know what it is. Yeah, it's so a big deal down here. Yeah, it's a big deal down here. You know, and um, 
I, is that um, what you is that what you played? Yeah, that's what I played. Yep, and because um, you're a pretty big guy, are a lot of the Aboriginal guys pretty big? Because um, I just think Maoris and they yeah, are no. enormous, aren't Tradi- they? Like if you think about traditionally, no, we, we weren't huge like that. But with all the maccas and rubbish that I probably <laughs> shouldn't eat, the macca, the McDonald's, <laughs> McDonald's. Sorry, yeah, we call it maccas here. <laughs> Okay, so talk to me about your mum then. Did you was your mum pretty immersed in no her, her culture? No, no, because if at that time when the missionaries come in, so in nineteen oh two, my great great grandmother had been on the mission for two years. So two years prior to that, they were caught at gunpoint at a little place called Byrock, which is out near Brewarrina. And that's when um, my family first were put on the mission. So from that day, at gunpoint, yeah. So they were captured and put and put onto missions because the missionaries believed the way of life they were living was not suitable to fit in the Westernized ways. Which why? Was, what way of life? Oh no, walk around naked, hunting, living off the land. You know, no property, no being ownership. nomadic, no ownership, and obviously at that time they were moving cattle out and probably I could assume that, you know, my people were spearing the cattle and, you know, that we've got a really sacred waterhole called Wagabugani and it's it, I'll take you one, there one day when we, we go out there and cattle and everything just coming in there and desecrating that sacred waterhole. And that, that country out there is, is it's very harsh country, so water's very sparse, you know, it's very uh, it's limited. So them sacred waterholes were very well looked after. Next minute you've got cattle and horses and everything coming through there and desecrating those those sacred sites. So, again, you know, I could only imagine that our people were sort of resilient towards that and sort of, you know, trying to ensure that they were looked after, but you just – things happened and they were put onto that mission. And from there, so you weren't allowed to speak your language. Oh, okay. Yeah, you weren't – yeah, that was you, – you could be shot and killed for speaking your language. There were people – the stories right across this country has that taken place. Um, what about the residential schools? Did that happen here, like it did in Canada? What do you mean by residential schools? Um, Boarding schools. Yeah. We yeah, so, they take the kids from families. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the, all that the culture and that was sort of looked upon as being demonised, and it was part of the devil of us singing in um, not English, you know what I mean, in all our languages and dancing around fires and you know, some of the stuff that you've seen and I've I've been able to exp- show you so. That there were policies, government policies put in place to say our people were that that needs to stop. What was it? Was it just considered savage? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Wild. Wild. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not controlled. Not white. Not controlled. Right. Different. Okay, so let's move forward then. So that was your great great grandma. Yeah, my great great grandmother. Yeah. Okay, so how does this trickle? Basically, what I'm trying to get to is. How did you become so passionate about this? Yeah, so again, we've always grown up being Aboriginal, you know what I mean? But I didn't really know the true essence of what that meant until later on in life because for a lot of our people, you know, as I said, it was, you could have been shot or killed for speaking your language. You know, I was just very fortunate enough that one side of my family was able to hold on to all those stories and knowledge. And he's, he's that old man I talk about, Uncle Paul Gordon, um, so he was able to come into my life um, in my 20s and start, you know, once I finished playing footy, because as I said, footy was my culture. I was making money off it. I travelled overseas playing it. So that was, you know, training four days a week. That was, I was fixated on that. But once that all finished, 
I was like, who am I? What do I do now? You know, like I knew I was Aboriginal. I've worked in, in Aboriginal jobs and, you know. What's an Aboriginal job? So like um, a, a, a service where um, you might, for instance, at the moment I work with young Indigenous men um, trying to uh, empower them and get them working towards a better future and, and around social and emotional well-being and suicide prevention. So that, you know, it's an identified role that they, that companies identify an Aboriginal person with a specific skill set and a connection to local people and you go in and, and you and you try and uh, deliver uh, the appropriate services for, for your people. Okay, so you work those sorts of roles? Yeah, I've worked those for about 10 years now. And then what happened? I mean, because you are so passionate and educated about this. Yeah. So, so how did that I – mean, I'm assuming you didn't just go to your local library and nah, start reading. Because nah, I've tried to do that and nah, it's very hard to yeah, do. Yeah, it's hard to do. There's a lot of information in books and that. But as I said, that, that old man, Uncle Paul Gordon, um, he's had all that knowledge and he come into my life through my cousin Tyrone. And, yeah, we just started reconnecting, going back out in the bush learning the language, learning songs and dances, learning bush tucker. Now, when you say bush tucker, that's food? Yes, yeah, so I like food, food sources, traditional and native food sources. So. Okay, so it just slowly began slowly, to Slowly, yes. Yeah. When did you start your company? The company I work for, Wakageti with the tourism, it's been around for a while now. And I did, my brothers, Jeremy and, and, and Waylon, had sort of set that up probably about f- 2013, I think. And then I joined with them probably about four years ago. Oh, so it's a family group. Uh, yeah, you could say that. When I say when I say brothers, that oh, doesn't right. mean of course, of course. Yeah, so I'm not saying that they're my biological brothers. Right. They're just mates a bit shallow. Yeah, so you guys say brothers and sis. Yes. Well that segues me perfectly into my next area here. So yeah. historically the Aboriginals were a community, not a village as such, because they weren't in one spot. But they were a community, right? That's right, yeah. We had marriage systems, we had governments, we had all these things set up prior to Europeans invading Australia. And we had a way of life, and I talked to you a little bit about it before, you you don't survive in one of the harshest continents in the world for, let's say, what are they, 60,000 years without some sort of procedure and governments and way of life structure. Unfortunately, some of it was sort of dismantled with a lot of the warfare and, you know, talked about the um, the smallpox being introduced and people killed and all those horrible things that took place. But, so a lot of this happened here as well. In Canada, a lot of this yeah, happened. So it yeah, happened here as well. If you look at it, it happened right across the continent, right across the globe, you know. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about the way of life because I'm absolutely fascinated by it. So one of the things that I really love about the Aboriginal history is that there were, there were no settlements. They they seem to move with the seasons. Can yeah, you that's walk right. This? Yeah, so if, if you think about it, you know, a lot of our places that we, we resided, you know, were somewhat nomadic. You know, we would look after the land where we were and we'd move with the seasons and because, as I said, you know, you'd have to understand – when your fruits were blossoming, when your berries were blossoming, where your animals were maybe mating and, and moving around at certain times of year. So you followed with what the conditions of the land were providing you. We, ha- we had, you know, houses and systems like that, but we didn't stay in the one place. We were moving continuously with the land and what it provided us at the time. So did they come back to the houses that they Yeah, built? of course. So you'd always move back around, you know, like a circle sort of thing. 
Because one of the criticisms that I've heard, I'm just going to be totally frank yeah, here, but, and yeah, I'm comfortable enough with yeah. you to be totally honest. I've heard people say, the occasional person say, yeah. oh, but they didn't have homes, you know, they were very yeah. primitive. Yeah. And when I started looking into the history that I've discovered about different communities and indigenous communities, most of them were nomadic. Yeah. I mean, even the people, even the villages that did hunker down for the winter, they still traveled or had a majority of their people who traveled with the seasons to go and provide That's food. Right. You know, so I don't know, does that make them primitive or smart? Well, it depends. We only made things that we needed. Yeah, you know like the I mean? other the other criticism, and I will. That's I think this is the last one I'm hitting you with because again, this is new to me too. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, someone had said, "Oh, you know, they couldn't even figure out how to make the wheel," and it yeah. was like, "But did they need it?" Did yeah. We, did, well, well, you 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 know, this is <clears throat> a lot of this knowledge that I talk about comes from that old man, Uncle Paul, and he always teaches us, and, and I've heard him explain this many times. And the wheel was invented to carry heavy loads. That's it. You know, a car, truck. We were not greedy people. We did not need to carry heavy loads. We took from the land what we needed, not what we wanted. I've heard all these sort of arguments about our people. Like I talked earlier about the fish traps. The fish traps are kilometres long. They're the oldest man-made structure in the world. The Egyptian pyramids, as beautiful as they are, they're only about five or 7,000 years old. The same way they've been carbon dated, our fish traps have been carbon dated out at Brewarana. And they tell us that they're 40,000 years old. How do they work? You'll have to come and, and see. <laughs> but can you explain to people how the fish get trapped? Yeah, I can explain, but they should come and see, you know. Like people <laughs> can pay, they come and see? Yeah, you, yeah, of course, come out there. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. You know, people pay thousands of dollars to fly to Europe and see the pyramids. Come and come and see our fish traps. Come and see our country out there, you know. You did warn me about yeah. this, okay. And it's really interesting, you know, just for people listening. Like I've been filming some of the stuff that we've talked yep. about. And I would say probably 60% of the stuff that you've shown me and that we spoke about I haven't been able to film. And I just want the listener to know that they're going to get hit with a couple of barriers in this conversation where you're going to shut me down or you're going to say, come and see. This isn't a scam or a situation of Nigel not knowing what he's talking about. It's that you literally have to step foot to truly appreciate what you're talking about. That's right. And now that I have stepped some feet in some of these places, I I completely understand where you're coming from Uh, and respect that we're not going to be showing a lot of it. It's like, you know, a relationship, you know, a marriage. You don't just get married. You've got a couple of dates first, get to know one another, build that relationship, build that rapport, and then you have that strong bond. And that's the same with our land, each other, our stories, our culture, and those those sites and those places that that we get to share with people. Yeah, I feel like this podcast is like the cover of the book, and then like I've I've taken a, a bit of an effort, and I feel like you. What did you call it? Kindergarten. I feel like I'm in my kindergarten chapter, but every time that you go to read the book, you pick up something new. That's so right. we'll start with the cover today, and we'll just grow from there. Yeah. And anyone who wants to read the full book can just uh, book a trip, but it's hard because they have to come to Australia. That's right. But they'll fly to Egypt. They'll fly to China to see the Great Wall. So how would that work? They would just come. I mean, it's intimidating because yeah. your operation, for example, is a yep. small operation. I would That's assume right. there are a few operations. Yeah, that do there's this. plenty around the country. There's plenty of Aboriginal tourism businesses right around the country, and you know. I can understand people being intimidated, but that's because people come with an ideology of certain things that they've read in the paper or whatever. We just 
we just want people to have a, a, a greater understanding about who we are, what we've come through, and walk with us on a journey to what lies ahead. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that I've seen, and you can shut me down where you need to. Talk to me about the carvings in the rocks. Yeah, so uh, up on the uh, eastern states here of New South Wales, uh, I live here in on, uh, Garingai country around the Awabakal people and Dark and Young people just out of Sydney. And this is all sandstone country, and I've been very fortunate enough with the local elders here to be able to you know share story and, and give people a really good insight to um, Aboriginal culture here. But yeah, so our stories, you know, we never had books as such, but we had education systems. We had a system in place that um, our kids learn, our adults learn, and that was in the bush. Our greatest teachers is the environment. And a lot of our knowledge is passed on through language, song, dance, art, I don't like, you know, it is art, like people call it art now, but it's not art, a story, you know. The, it has a purpose. It has a purpose. You know, everything, we we didn't do things to have fun, you know. We had fun doing it, but it wasn't just, you know, to go out and for doing it for the gram, you yeah. know. It wasn't <laughs> right. for the gram. So um, everything was done with a, a purpose. Those engravings that you've seen, you know, they were put there thousands of years ago. You know, I think some of the ones I took you to have been carbon dated to be, you know, five to 6,000 years old. That's a long time. They're just That's a, in the middle of the bush. Yeah, they're there. Some of them have a little sign that just says you're entering this sort of country. Uh, obviously, don't vandalize it. Yep. But they, I'm just amazed how many there are and they aren't inundated with tourists and signs. Uh, it's it, it's a double-edged sword. You know, We want people to come and visit these sites, but we want the right people to come and visit these sites because as you've seen today, people graffiti them, desecrate them destroy them so it's a double-edged sword with people knowing where they are and visiting them so yeah i don't there's got to be a balance you know with everything we do there's got to be a balance for that but i think with what we're trying to achieve you know what uncle paul's trying to achieve is that building relationships that is the key to anything good now i don't want to give away any stories or give anything away here but it was really amazing to me when you took me to that spot and I was able to learn, the uh, not the characters, but the figures. Yep. And uh, we took off our shoes and we walked from figure to figure and you explained the stories and the morals behind what I was looking at and, and the lessons that they were trying yeah. to convey. Yep. So historically, what would happen? They would come in in a group of how many people do you think? Uh, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't there, but you know, a large number of people would travel country. Um, and follow them old song lines. So they weren't travelling in groups of three or four? No, they were big mobs, a big mob of people. And, you know, a certain time of year we'd all meet together for, for ceremony and celebration and boys becoming men, girls becoming women, marriage, birth, death, you know, and it'd all be done for through ceremony and celebration. And you'd travel country and walk and learn the stories of, of that country and, um, that place we took you to, they call it Map Site, and it, it, it's a place of uh, journey. You know, the map of life, map of who we are, where we're from, where we're going. Yeah, we're not talking little carvings. I mean, no. some of these are bigger than than I am. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yep. and they did. They all. It was a map. You know, you go from one to the next. The emu. What was the emu's significance again? She was. She. Her name's Buta. Yeah, in my like in our story. She was uh, very significant in, in our stories and our beginnings. 
in our culture and our stories, you know, everything comes from the woman, starts with the woman and, and everything comes back to that to that woman and she represents that old special woman. In one spot of the layout, Buddha is pointing in one direction. Yeah, and that, that story probably just has to be there, you know, like I understand that you, you're fascinated in that aspect of it, but, yeah, that, just, that probably just needs to stay at that place there. We'll leave that one. Leave but if it. people come here, they can talk about it, that you you don't. Yeah, like we're it. happy to show. You know what I mean? Like we're happy to to share, but we want people to be present, just exactly like the old people were, because they knew how to navigate life. At the way we're living at the moment, this is not how people should live. Poverty, war, all that sort of stuff. We we this system doesn't work. So no. we want people to take a day or a week or however long they'd like to come and embrace our culture and, and get an understanding of it, but be present with it, be right there with it, not get the story on audio book and then, you know, because you're not going to feel that connection to it. You're not going to build that relationship with that place. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. What about when you were telling me the stories about mountains? And yep. the animals. Can we talk about that? Yeah, of course. So in our creation story um, from my country, from Nampar country, we believe that there were four animals created at the beginning of time and they went out and made all the different landscapes and valleys and hills and that being the kangaroo, the echidna, the goanna and the emu. And every single one of them except the emu fell asleep and become a, a really special mountain right across the country and... Although, uh, as Aboriginal people of this land, you know, we were in mobs of 600 and then 2,000 different dialects across the country, we all had the same story, but just a little bit different. Maybe different animals or, or different things, but same sort of stories, just a little bit different. And we had ways to communicate the similarities of all that. Now, the mountain that we were looking at was a... Echidna. Echidna. And you were saying that it was sacred. Yeah, right? it's a sacred mountain, yeah. But, but that meant you couldn't... No, you don't need to go. So I talked to you about it and sort of tried to explain to you. The beauty of that lookout where we were at, what was the beauty of that? Well, the whole... You mean physically beautiful just, or... Yeah, just physically. What were we looking at? What was the beauty? Hills and mountains. That big mountain, right? Yeah. When you're standing on top of it, can you see that mountain? No. So where's the beauty? Under your feet. So you really don't need to go there. So you, for example, have never been up there. Never. And the only people who could be up there are? Uh, like our elders. So when do you get to, to elder status? 
that's not my call. You know, my elders will let me know when I'm ready for that. So tell me about Uncle Paul. So he we sounds don't. Fascinating. Yeah. So he is one of the most influential and very special men that that I've ever met. I, my, my dad's my dad. I love my dad dearly. You know, and, and my dad's done everything for me. But I I put Uncle Paul on the same pedestal as my dad. How did you meet Uncle Paul? Uh, he's his family. He's he's so he's my pop, my grandfather's first cousin. Got it. So my great-grandmother and Uncle Paul's dad are brother and sister. So Uncle Paul's done everything that man could ever think of. He's got so much knowledge, not just about culture, but about things that have happened overseas, things that have taken place and ecosystems. How does he uh, learn about what's going oh, on I don't, overseas? I don't know. He's not I, living on Google. He's not living. He despises Google. Like he's in the bush, isn't he? He's in. He lives ninety-eight percent of his time in the bush. So, how would that work then? Does he have a house? Yeah, somewhat. Would that be considered a modernized? Uh, it's sort of. It just is what it is. We don't put labels. You on You don't it. need labels. On no, it. he's yeah. in the bush. That's it. Naked. Not naked. Oh, he wears clothes. <laughs> of course, you have to wear clothes. They'll lock him up and throw him in jail if he's walking around no. naked. No, you get thrown in. They will throw you in jail if you walk around naked. What about topless? Uh, well, I remember being, I think I was 13 years old when BC, I swear this happened because I remember almost doing it. And then my parents told me I couldn't, they were going to make it. I think they did make it so women could walk around topless. Yeah. And I almost did and was told that I wasn't allowed to. Okay. So he does abide by that. Yeah, of course. Does he hunt all of his own meat? Does he go to Coles once a week? Yeah, he does. He does all that sort of stuff too, but he, he sort of lives off the land a lot as well. So. Is he appreciative yes. of any of the world today? Yeah, of course, he has to be. You know? Or does he resent it? Uh, no, he, he's appreciative. He's a, a very level-headed guy. You know? He's what we would call a clever man. He's just so clever. But he's very knowledgeable. You know, He's not, oh, this is how it is and this is what it's got to be. He can understand and appreciate things for what they are and what they see. You know? Well, that's my, one of the next things I want to talk to you about is when you had said to me, you know, we can't just stand here and say everything needs to go back to the way it used to be. We are where we are now, and we need to work together moving forward. And I really like that you don't alienate people like myself or or try to push me or my listener away that you want to bring us in because you do believe that we need to work together as a team. That's right. You know, we we can't be naive and think that all white people are going to disappear and we're going to get all our lands back and the buildings are going to disappear. We'd like that. Don't, Don't get me wrong. But that's not how it's going to be. So we need to ensure, again, going back to relationships, we need to build strong relationships with everyone here, no matter who you are. To do what? What would the Indigenous, what would the Aboriginal community like to see? We would love to see relationships built to ensure that everyone has the same opportunities. We've got people, you know, and I'm talking about my people, uh, Aboriginal people, we've got people here that are homeless, that are living off the street, that are taken away from their lands. There's so much landscape here in Australia that they could give parcels of land back. What about the fact that a lot of these communities that are struggling are just so far removed, they're, they're in the middle of nowhere? That's right, yeah. So, how much of, of them being cut off from a lot of these benefits, how much of, of it is just that they're so remote? Yeah, well, that's right. Out of sight, out of mind, this government sort of has, you know, and the system doesn't work, you know what I mean? Like the system, the rich get richer here and the poor die. That's that's basically how it works. But, you know, you look at things that this government's put in place. There's a thing here called the Northern Territory Intervention. Um, and that was put in 2010, I, I believe, where they come and 
well, they said there's an epidemic of child abuse happening in the Northern Territory. So what they did was they went around and um, sort of cut all the alcohol off in communities, basically branded every man in those communities as being a pedophile. Now, what ended up happening from that is that they changed some of the policies, anti-discrimination policies, so they could send the army in on their on Aboriginal people. So in 2010, a government employee come out and said, yeah, he's done this report that he's found child abuse things happening in communities. They abolished a government policy around anti-discrimination, I'm pretty sure, so then that allowed them to send the army in on their own people. Many years after it, it come out, that government employee lied and faked that report. Then there was an independent report done and there was only one child found with something in, in along the lines of that. So what would the armies do, though? They didn't go in and beat everybody. They removed people from communities. Oh, they did. Yeah. The way I look at it is that there's a lot of mining industries up there in the Northern Territory, fracking for gases. Easiest way to dismantle a community at the moment is remove the men. So I'm pretty sure that intervention's still taking place. You know, they're trying to implement these welfare cards. If you're on welfare dependency, you get a government card that you can, you don't get cash, you just get a card and you can only spend it at certain places. Now that's taking away people's human rights. Whew. I am definitely not the right person to go down this conversation because a I don't know the history yeah. or the or the um, policy behind any of this, yeah. but it sounds I don't know I don't know. Do you? It, it, it's 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 a tough. I don't live there either. You know what I mean. So I can't speak on behalf of those communities. But talk to me about this. You are on the suicide prevention line. That's right. So what are the majority of the calls that you get? Or or. More yeah. importantly, who are they from? So at the moment, I work with young Aboriginal men around suicide prevention. So at the moment, uh, Australia's Indigenous pop- or Aboriginal population, uh, we sit at the top of a lot of the negative statistics in, in this country. And that's just because all the negative policies that have been put in place, removal from land. So talk to me about the men who call in today. What's going on? Are they unemployed? Yeah, they're just struggling. You know, like a lot of our young fellas are... are the same sort of thing I went through, you know, like not sort of knowing who they are. And I think that's that's a common issue with adolescents is that trying to figure out who they are. You know, today I think it's a lot harder because you've got all of these systems around, you know, social media. You know, we look at social media, for instance, for bullying aspect. As a kid, like when I was growing up, you got bullied at school and then you went home and it sort of stopped. Now you've got social media, bullying's 24-7. It doesn't stop or it doesn't turn off. Oh, so these guys are getting hit with that? Yeah, of course. Of course. And then it goes right back to what you and I were speaking about earlier as far as constantly comparing yourself to thy neighbor. Yeah, that's right. right. And so now all of a sudden these guys can and girls, people, yep. feeling inadequate because yep. of basically what they're seeing online, half of which isn't even real. It's not even – some of it's not even real, you know what I mean? But that's the world we live in. Um, unfortunately, we've you know, I don't like to – I wouldn't like to work in these roles, but it's a need, you know. We need to ensure that these young people are understanding and and having a a connection to their culture and who they are, as well as, you know, trying to figure out how they work in this world. You know, as Aboriginal people in this country, we've got to walk two worlds. You know, we've got to 
I have an understanding of who we are in our cultural world and our identity and our ancestors with our ancestors and all that. We've also got to work in this contemporary westernised world. Get a job, go to school, buy a house, get married, do all that stuff. It's hard work. Yeah, there's just not enough hours in the day. So let's get back to a little bit of the lighter part of this discussion and talk about the history because I'm fascinated by it. Let's talk about survival in the outback. Did they all frequent the ocean? No, not not frequent the ocean. You know, like um, depends how far you want to go back. I talked about that special place, Lake Mungo. It's you know from Sydney. It'd be fourteen, fifteen hour drive inland. You know, there's shell deposits, there's fossils out there, there's an inland, an old inland sea. So the continent was covered in water at one stage. And that's Just, why you said they found the first human yeah, remains. Yeah, Mungo here. man. So uh, what was the average size of someone back then? Would they be small? Were they smaller or were no, they big guys? No, tall. Yeah, pretty tall. Yeah, yeah. Six foot. Yeah, very lean, you know, living off a really nutritious diet and, and, and travelling and walking and running, you know, running after kangaroos and food yeah, sources. Yeah, how did they do that? Talk to me about weapons. Yeah, just, you know, there's a lot of weapons that our people developed that we needed, not that we, you know, wanted. You know, people say, oh, they couldn't even invent the, the bow and arrow. We didn't need to. Use spears, right? Yeah, we could throw the old men. I still see old men now when I, when I go in the bush throw spears, you know, 100 metres. Were they out there? Alone or were they? No, in a everything group? was group. Everything was teamwork. Everyone had roles and obligations to follow, and everyone knew their their role and what they did, and everything was done sufficiently and ethically to ensure that you know food was on the table, but also ecosystems were looked after, animals were cared for. Before we start going into ecosystems and and burning or burn management, I just want to talk about the boomerang. Yeah. Because that was one of the most interesting... You had a go at it? Well, I'm horrible at it, but it was really cool (laughs) watching you throw it. And you were explaining about how how it worked with the geese. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so like there's many different boomerangs that, that we used, but that the common one that people see is that one, the one, the returning boomerang, throw it up in the air and it comes back. But the Aboriginals invented that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's truly remarkable It's remarkable. Watch. You've seen it come back and I it, caught it. Oh, know. I was ducking like crazy. <laughs> I was terrified I was going to lose a yours, yours, Yours is what we would call a, a stick. Which, what's that? It's uh, you throw it and it doesn't come back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was so embarrassing. I'm happy you didn't make me try it more than once. Okay, so talk to me about this though. It wasn't like they were trying to hit. A yeah, they weren't the throwing. Head. They weren't throwing that returning boomerang to directly hit something. It was thrown over the top of a, a mob of geese or, or ducks or, or, or birds, and the women would tie ropes and nets through stringy bark, and, and they would net the geese or the, the mob of ducks or birds, whatever it was. So what? So they would throw the boomerang over and over it would the top scare of the, the head, geese. and it, it'd scare the geese like it was a hawk. Or, or an eagle above them, and then they'd fly low level along the creek, and they we'd pull the nets up, and they, we'd catch the catch the geese. That's incredible. Were there any other weapons that had that yeah, sort of? Yeah, of course. That you can talk about. Well, one's enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one's enough. You know, even your conversation is like the Aboriginal mindset of just like you don't need any more. Will, nothing in excess, will, nothing in, nothing greedy, necessary. Just, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's all about the journey, you know. It's all about, you know, the experience. And yeah. Again, I explain it to you. If I give everything to you today, tomorrow, you're only going to remember a little bit. It's fun walking with you in the bush because you'll be like, 
Hmm, how much do I want to share right now? We'll save that for next time. It's literally a journey. You're not ready yet, young grasshopper. <laughs> okay, talk to me about burn management, because this is something that stems beyond just Australia. I mean, this yeah. also happened in, in my neck of yeah, the woods cool. as well. Yeah. So tell, tell, tell me about it. For people who are listening right now who have no idea what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, so ta- we're talking about the management of ecosystems and land through fire. Fire is one of the oldest tools of man probably the oldest tool of man wherever you come from in the world but as we talked about before we moved with the seasons so for instance if we were living in a a community or an ecosystem that was full of you know native bush fruits like jibungs or any of the native currants and it looked the the elders were always very cautious of you know the the land and if it looked like we were eating too much then we'd move and follow the seasons and um before we'd leave, we would manage and burn that land. So making sure that everything was burnt with a cool burn, um, not a raging fire, because we never left. If you look at you know a lot of state forests or national parks areas now, there's a lot of leaf litter. It's because they haven't continued the burn. Now, a lot of our... It's na- almost impossible to hunt too, because yeah. every step I take, it doesn't matter if I'm barefoot. doesn't matter. It crunches yeah. and it's noisy. So it wasn't like that. Everything was burnt, and then by the time we were leaving or moving around, we would burn that area. And then we all know that after a fire moves through somewhere, everything pops back to life. Our food sources and our you know our fruits and berries, we would burn those trees. A lot of our berries and, and food sources don't um, what is it germinate if the fire's not if they're not hit with fire. Those plants and trees need fire to uh, continue life. So we'd burn. By the time we followed the season, got back to that same spot next year, everything was flowering, beautiful, ready to go again. Which also would have brought in animals to come and eat all the young growth. That's right. You know, the the shelves at the supermarket were restacked due to fire. (laughs) Did they not preserve meat? Uh, I'm not 100% sure about the – I don't think so. You know, I keep saying we only take what we needed. So we wouldn't have to go out and kill six or seven kangaroos if we only needed to feed – that day, 10 people. Yeah, we only took from the land what we needed, not what we wanted. Because there was abundance. There's abundance. Everything was looked after. There was no influence from the outside world. Everything was looked after. Yeah, everything had a, a system in place to ensure, you know. And I just love that there's no harsh winter here. So, no. you know, they weren't covered with snow in, in, yeah. a, in some regions. In some regions, regions yeah. yeah. Obviously, there's regions where it snows, but. How did they work around that? Possum skin cloaks. Um, so they stayed? They didn't leave? Uh, I dare say they would have moved out of area a little bit, but not too far, you know, like, yeah, there would have been cold nights, but yeah, possum skin cloaks and fur. And But you think they kept moving? Yeah, kept moving, yeah. So the Aboriginals never did settle down, not until they were forced to? Not until we were forced, yeah, not until, and that's when, you know, I, I talk about my great-great-grandmother, that's 1902, 01. So we're still trying to figure out how this all works, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not that long ago, is No. It? You know, like, as I said, my mum couldn't go to school. I'm the first of, you know, that family direct line there to go to school. It's 2019, you know? What are some of the most interesting things that you've learned in your journey about your own yeah. culture and history? I think the main thing is that connection and, and being humble it's very hard to be uh, somewhat humble in, in the modern society today because you know you think you got to sell yourself, you got to sell a product, you got to 
talk yourself up. You got a you know, job interview. You got to go in and tell them how good you are at a certain job. So it's it's crazy. But yeah, I think that just how how knowledgeable those old people were. If I could have one wish, it'd just go back to spending time with them old people prior to the invasion that happened here. Talk to me about the artwork. When I see Aboriginal artwork, it's all made up of a series of dots. What's yeah. the what's is that just how they did Yeah, that? so different mobs or tribes painted different ways. So if you ever get a chance to go into the into the desert country, head to a place called Papanya. Um, and that's where dot painting originated from a little place called Papanya. And I've spent time in there. Is there any meaning uh, behind it? Uh, yeah, they mean a lot of different things. Um, for different artists, they mean different things. But they're, you know, a lot of the dots and the lines will, will represent a story. Everything's story. Each dot, you know, it just depends up to the artist and and where they're from and what they're what they're trying to explain through their story. Back to diet. Were there any animals that were totally off limit that they would not eat? Here's the thing. So we had systems in place that there were, you know, kangaroo people. That people had that connection to that kangaroo, they'd look after that kangaroo, their their totem, and they'd look after and share, um, you know, the echidna, the goanna. Um, so for me, I've never eaten a goanna because that's my totem. Okay, so, so you don't eat your own totem. Yeah, that that can change. That can change in, in certain things. That's not always the way. It's just for for me, that's our family totem, and I've just been told to don't eat it by my elders, so I don't eat it. But not in not saying like. You know, you think about if you're sitting in the bush starving and you've only got that totem, would them old people have ate it? I'd say so. What about cannibalism? Was that a thing? Not so much, no, because we had an abundance of food. And what about fish? How did they catch their fish? Fish, yeah, fish against traps, the fish obviously. traps. Yeah, so the fish traps were put in place, spears, um, freshwater mussels out in our, in the in the Barwon River. Oh, can you eat those? Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. not now. Yeah. Are they polluted now? Oh, you'd, you'd like to think not. But with everything that go, that's going on with our river system at the moment, yeah, you, you'd probably, don't know, you'd just check it out, smell it. Was the introduction of deer a welcome thing or was that kind of, would, did that create any issues with the indigenous no, community? I, 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 obviously there'd be, there's issues with the ecosystem and everything that's introduced. I know one of your little favourite foxes that you, you adore, it causes big problems here, you know what I mean, with, with, our, with our little lizards and our native lizards and and, uh, and all those little animals. So um, Yeah, no, fox and feral cats are a real problem. Yeah, they're a real problem. They yeah. are a problem. But as much as a problem they are, introduced humans are a problem too, if not even more. Well, let's talk about this because one of the things that really surprised me recently was Australia Day. Yep. And there was a lot of controversy around this Australia Day thing. Yep. <laughs> I can't yeah, cool. tell if your smile right now is that I've just opened a can of worms. No, it's just, yeah, like, it's pretty simple for me. Right? Well, let's tell <clears throat> the listener what I'm talking about right now. All right. So Australia Day, January 26th is a day celebrated of, you know, the nation celebrates the day of everyone being Australian. It's like we have Canada Day. Yeah, whatever, July 4th, I think they have over Independence, Independence day. day and all that sort of thing, you know. Now- for people to get an understanding of it, in 1788, it wasn't a peaceful settlement here in Australia. All right? That's that's the fact. The first couple of days were because everyone was working out who they were, what was how they were translating English. But when people started to be greedy and take land and not listen to the traditional owners here, 
and trying to push their values and ways of life on our people. And ownership. And ownership, property, things went pear-shaped. I have to speak up at this point now because I had mentioned this to you earlier and this is the perfect time for me to fit it in. It's just really interesting reading about feminism, which isn't as aggressive as it sounds. I mean, as soon as you say feminism, it makes Ooh. it makes people either yeah, exactly, it does that to me too, right? I yeah. mean, I used to hear the word feminism, but we need it. You know, well, it's... I used to think about something it didn't. It, it doesn't have to be aggressive. But is it pheasant feminism, or is it just being equal, respect, or, equal or respectful? Like what? What is it? I think it's just being equal. Yeah, <laughs> equal. What it is. And, yeah. and equality doesn't have to. I don't want. I don't want to derail this, which is very easy to do, but I just am going to say this. I've been reading about the history of how it did happen, and it it really does parallel a lot of what you're saying, and I'll just create, you know, I'll just explain to the listener here. From what I've been reading, and again, I'm very new to to learning about a lot of this history, historically in, in indigenous communities, men and women were equal. You can be equal without having to do the same things. Like you're, I would ask you to go and lift that tree trunk over there and you might ask me to push out a baby, right? We can do different things, but we still are equals. That's right. And the communities, the indigenous communities were often equal. I know we can start taking this down a nasty route of all rape and savagery and all that stuff, but for the most part, the communities were men and women were equal. And then what happened was we started settling. Yeah. And the woman couldn't push plows. That's right. And so, well, what could they do? Well, there's a kitchen. They can be in the kitchen and they can have babies. Yeah. So now what you've got is you've got a settlement yeah. or you've got a home and you also have a neighbor. By having a neighbor, that means that they have got possessions. That's right, yeah, property. And, mm-hmm, and maybe you want to have the same thing. So now you've got this bit of, of competition going on. Yeah. And all of this to say that, uh, and I hope to cover this at another point in another podcast, women eventually became ownership. Ownership, yeah, property. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of reports that I've been reading anyway are saying that this is how, you know, the patriarchy really all kind of came to be. Of course, there's a, there's so much more that goes into that. Yeah, of but course. neighbors and yeah. settling and ownership and greed yeah. were the demise of so much of our world. And, 100%. And, 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 and it still, still is. Still is. Still happening today. You know, if you unpack all that and, and unwrap where does it come from, where does it come from, where does it come from, it comes from colonization and it comes from religion. Was there anything good that came from the colonization in the, you said it was 70? 1788. Ownership and possession was definitely well in, you know, well underway. Yeah, that, that was when it was, was commencing, yeah. So that's what they were bringing here. That's what they were bringing here, that way of life. Were there any positives to bringing that way of life here? I'm going to say no. Okay, talk to me about Australia Day. So, so what's going so on? So back on Australia Day, the day of January 26th is when that started. From there, we know that it's well documented, massacres, killings, rapes, horrible things took place on that day. Now, we celebrate that day. Um, you know, Australia celebrates that day. All we want is the date changed, right? For the listeners and people that don't know, the date's been changed three or four times before in the past. Oh, really? Yeah, it hasn't always been January 26th. Wait, well, so what prompted the change in the past? I don't know, I couldn't tell you. Okay. But I just know that it's been changed in the past. Why can it not be changed now? But if it's been changed, then it's not the date. It's not the date. So it's, not, it's Australia but Day. Doesn't that mean Australia Day was a, become a federation in I don't know what year, but 
Then they had it on that date. Then they changed it again. And they changed it again. Now it's on January 26th. January 26th is the day when colonisation started. Oh, okay. So what date would you like it changed to? Or do you think there should be an Australia Of day? course there should be an Australia day. We should celebrate, you know. Obviously, there's a lot of good things that, you know, have come now. You know, I said before, I, you know, from colonisation, no. Because I'd love to go back and live the way my old people did. Born into a community with all your mothers, your aunties around you, as your counsellors, as your school teachers, as your psychologists, as your peers. You were given a home. You didn't have to buy it. Your land was your home. It was there for you when the time was ready. Was rape a part of their culture? No. You, you, there's stories of men being killed. We're, we're human. Things were, there were mistakes making. We're not sure, we don't shy away from that. But things, people were punished. And we weren't given a slap on the wrist. So what day would you want to change it to? I don't care. Any day. Just not that day. 99.9% of Australians, I don't think, would really care if we changed the date. They understand the history. The history is everything's starting to come full circle. You know, from the days of being shot and killed for speaking your language, I can now speak my language and learn it and pass it on. But as I said before, we need everyone on the same journey. We need people to walk with us to ensure that we're not at the top of those negative statistics. How would you or me or anybody be able to uh, appeal to these people or, or bring them in? Like, what would you ultimately like to see happen here? Yeah, I'd just like to see, you know, probably start more of the um, the lessons in schools and incorporating stuff in schools. Is the history not taught in schools? Uh, yeah, it is somewhat. Um, I think there can be a better job done on it. I, just, I, I understand that schools are a tricky place, you know, it's the teachers are under the pump and whatever, but I think things can start in schools, but it all comes back to the system. It all comes back to the system. There's a, there's a thing in place around the moment about... Um, Aboriginal people getting a voice in Parliament. So you think about Parliament at the moment. We don't have anyone that sits in there to represent Aboriginal people. Not one person? Not as such, no. What does not as such mean? I think there's advisors and people like that, but there's no one that really sits in there and can relay the needs of our people. That could be a step. I'd love to see a lot of land given back to the rightful owners or the custodians of the land. They're doing that in Canada. Doing it in Canada, yeah. They do it. Have you ever been to New Zealand? New Zealand are in front of us as a country by about 600 years, I reckon. Really? You look at their street signs, you look at their sign, everything's in their language, you know, the school. The, but what about the names here? I mean, I can't pronounce half the names in Australia. They no. feel like they're, I feel like they're all Indigenous, are they not? Yeah, some are. But th- we can always be better. There's not one or five things that there needs to be a collective of things to change, I think. Um, well, look, I'll wrap up class here. Right. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Just encourage people to be open-minded. You know, not everything you see on the newspaper or in the TV is true. But, you know, if you're ever thinking about visiting Australia or you're going to travel around Australia, Ensure that you, you you look up maybe an Aboriginal tourism company. Are they everywhere? Yeah, they're everywhere. Just you know, Google. They're on Google. Every sort of place has something in place that you'd be able to find. And a lot of my listeners fly through <clears throat> to New Zealand. Yeah. So they could they could fly through Sydney and book an outfitter through Sydney. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or through Melbourne. Yeah, hundred percent. Or Brisbane. Yep. 
And they can just everywhere. do a day trip. Yep, do a day trip. You can do an overnight trip. You can do five day trips. Mm. If I were listening to this, I would never book this trip because I would think that you were going to drive me to a pullout on the side of the road with a big sign that told me what I was about to look at. That's right. But it's not like that at yeah. all. And I think that's the beauty of it, these podcasts, is that we're, it's real life. This is live. This is, you know, and I took you to these places so you can have that emotional connection and share that. You know, that's and- all I wanted to do. Like the last time and this time, all <clears> I was <throat> thinking was I just wish that Charles and Adelaide could see this. Yeah. And they will. They will. But yeah. it is a sort of thing where you can talk about it and show pictures all you want. Yeah. But it is not the same as standing there. And knowing that where your feet are standing, all the people who stood there before right. you. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.